I've been fascinated by the ocean for as long as I can remember. When I was a kid, I spent as much time on the water as possible. Often I was fishing on my Mimi and Papa's dock or swimming in the rivers and ponds around my neighborhood. In junior high, I read what I believe to be the only book that I ever read in school uh, in its entirety. I read parts of a lot of books, but never full books. And I read one book all the way through. It was The Old Man and the Sea. And I became uh, fascinated, enthralled by the idea of spending days on the water fighting big fish. Later, as a high schooler, I bought a cheap aluminum John boat with a very unreliable outboard motor to explore the creeks around my neighborhood. In college, with dreams of restoring it into something more beautiful that could withstand bigger waters, I bought a 16-foot fiberglass hole and began trying to restore it in my dad's shop. I never finished that project before moving to Oregon, but I wasn't here in Oregon very long before I started to get the itch again, the, the itch to be back out on the water, and so I accepted a job fishing in Alaska. So I went up to the Great White Yonder for a few months and fished for salmon on a boat there in Alaska. There is something about salt water and sunshine that just gets me. Even to this day, if I'm sitting in the sunshine and it hits me in the face just right, I can hear Jimmy Buffett singing in the background the song, A Pirate Looks at 40. You may know it. It goes like this. Mother, mother ocean, I've heard your call. I've wanted to sail upon your water since I was three feet tall. For me, when I think of the ocean, I have very fond memories of my childhood and I have deep longings of a future life on a boat somewhere warm and sunny after I'm done pastoring here, of course, but someday. Maybe it's the same for you. Maybe that's the way you view the water. But in Jewish culture, in the eyes of those for whom the Bible was originally written, this was not the way they viewed the ocean. So when I read the Bible, I have to often remind myself that the sea, the ocean, have very different meanings to the original audience than they do for me. The sea, for these people, was symbolic of danger and unrest and turmoil. In Genesis, the ocean is depicted as a place of chaos, In Exodus, for example, the one thing that kept the children of Israel from freedom was what? The Red Sea. In Psalms, the sea is described as roaring and frothy. Over and over and over again, the sea is this archetype of pain and danger and death. One commentator described it like this. He said, in Jesus' day, the Jewish people feared large bodies of water. They referred to the sea as an abyss and saw it as a symbol of chaos and hell. And although the Sea of Galilee often looked beautiful and calm, many biblical writers described it as a fearsome place of darkness. Now, understanding this reality will help us immensely as we continue our study through John this morning. Because as we continue our study through John, we come to a very well-known story about the Sea of Galilee and about fear. And in this short, well-known but beautiful story, we learn much about what it means to be a follower of Jesus today. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. I know that that is not John chapter 6, but in order to get there, we have to start in Exodus 3. We'll put the words on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. In Exodus chapter 3, we see this young man, Moses, out in the wilderness tending to his father's flock. And he walks up on a burning bush and he hears a voice coming from the bush. And this voice begins telling him a story about how the people of have been living in slavery in Egypt, and how he, Moses, is going to be the one who goes toe-to-toe with Pharaoh and leads the people out of slavery. Now, Moses, remember, he's talking to a burning bush, so extend him some grace. But he hears this, and he goes, okay, great, I'll do it, but when I get there, and I tell them, hey, I'm here to lead you out of slavery, they're going to ask who sent me. 
Who should I tell them sent me? What is your name? And look at what God says in verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I can imagine the the look on Moses' face. Like, that's what you want me to say? Like, I'm going to get there. I'm going to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. I'm going to tell these people I'm leading them out of slavery. And when they ask me what your name is, you want me to say, I am? Okay. All right. God keeps going. Verse 15. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. God says, I am. This is my name. And it is my name for how long, the text says? Forever. You guys remember the Sandlot? Like forever. That's how I read that. Forever and ever and ever. Now, with that in mind, I want you to tuck that away. Exodus 3, tuck it away. Turn over to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. If you were new or you were catching up in this series, let me set some context. In John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, which we covered two weeks ago, Jesus has just fed 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. There were 5,000 men present, and scholars estimate that with women and children, there were about 20,000 total. And the crowds loved it. They loved it so much so that they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. But Jesus withdrew because although he was a king, he was not the king they were looking for, and he knew it, so he withdraws. And that brings us to verse 16. It says this, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. So again, let me show you a map just to give you an idea of where we're at in the story. Most scholars believe that the feeding of the 5,000 took place on the hillside above Bethsaida, there on the map. So they are headed from Bethsaida west to Capernaum, a distance of about six miles on the sea. Keep reading, middle of verse 17. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, darkness here is referring to physical darkness, like a literal darkness, but it's also getting at something more. All throughout John's gospel, darkness is symbolic of the absence of Jesus, the absence of Jesus. So go read John chapter 3. Spiritual darkness and physical darkness are one and the same, and they collide in this moment. So the guys in physical darkness and in spiritual darkness, in a sense, start rowing, and things take a tumultuous turn. Look at verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. So they they go out on what they expect to be a pretty quick trip, and the sea gets rough. The storm rolls in, and things take a turn. I'll be honest, I couldn't read this story this week without hearing the Gilligan's Island theme song just in the back of my head at all times. I just kept thinking, I bet they thought this was a three-hour tour. Like, this was going to be a short little tour, and now they're stuck on the sea. I had such a crush on Marianne when I was, uh, when I was a kid. Um, you guys remember that episode where the, uh, the gorilla steals Mrs. Howell's diamond brooch and they had to find, you guys know? I'm, I am so proud of my church right now that some of you know what I'm talking about. I, okay, so I just assumed this was something we all grew up on, honestly. And uh, I asked my wife this week, I'm like, hey, you remember that episode? And she's like, I've never seen that show. And I was like, what? Like, We've been married 11 years. How have I not known that you've never seen the show? Anyways, where are we? Um, (laughs) Strong wind. Here's the point. Rough sea, thank you. This was an extremely common thing on the Sea of Galilee. That's the point. 
you need to hear from that stupid illustration. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson describes it like this. He says, the Sea of Galilee lies about 600 feet below sea level. Cool air from the southeastern tablelands can rush in to displace the warm moist air over the lake, churning up the water into a violent squall in an instant. I read one news article this week that talked about a storm that occurred on this same sea in December of 2010. A storm rolled over the Sea of Galilee, creating 15-foot waves at times. In Tiberias, a town south of where this is actually happening, a large window at a Holiday Inn was blown in, injuring the people inside. Power lines were down, trees were down, solar water heaters were knocked off rooftops, and 60-mile-an-hour winds were reported. Eight inches of rain fell within 48 hours, and seven feet of snow fell on the upper slopes of Mount Hermon. These types of storms were dangerous, they were common, and they happened in this story. Verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So they're out there, get this, they're out there struggling, rowing this boat, and they look up and they see Jesus just casually strolling on the sea, just moonwalking on the waves, <laughs> like warm water ice skating across the Sea of Galilee. And what's, what's funny is Mark's account Mark's account tells us that they thought he was a ghost. So they see him, and they don't initially think it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost. And what's even more funny is that Mark tells us that Jesus was actually not going to stop. He was just going to walk by the boat. So go read Mark's account. It says that he was just going to walk by the boat and be like, what's up, guys? And then just keep walking. So they see this. They see this. And the text says that they are frightened, frightened, and rightfully so. That word frightened in the original language of the New Testament is this word. We'll put it up on the screen. Phobeo, and it means fear, and it's where we get the word phobia. Now, legitimate phobias are no laughing matter, but also they're kind of funny, especially when it's not your phobia. You know, when it's someone else's phobia, it's hilarious. When it's yours, it's not as funny. Let me give you an example. Our oldest daughter, Naya, from a very young age, had a legitimate phobia to these things. I'll show you a picture of it. <laughs> Now, I have no idea why. All I know is the first time she laid eyes on one of these toys, the look on her face was that of terror. I mean, deep, visceral, in her gut, terror. And it took an hour to calm the child down. Now, funny story, my parents didn't know of this phobia, and one of the first visits, and when they came out to meet Naya, they bought her just a bag of toys. And so she was just a little, a little taut at this point, and she's kind of sitting down with her bag, and she's like taking the tissue paper out, and I'm standing above her, uh, you know, as a father, and she takes the tissue paper out, and I realize that my parents unknowingly bought her a life-size one of these things, <laughs> like the size of her, and she's reaching her, she doesn't see it yet, but she's reaching her hand in to grab it, and I was like, no, you know, like, <laughs> these guys were frightened. Why? Well, the raging sea, the darkness, they're ghost that looks like their friend Jesus? And look at verse 20. This is so good. Verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now that phrase, it is I, looks like this in the Greek. It's pronounced ego, I, me. It's translated, it is I, or in the Hebrew, simply, I am. I am. Exodus 3. Who should I tell them sent me, Lord? What is your name? Who is the one who's going to rescue us? From danger, I am. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. I bet they were. <laughs> and immediately, 
Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, stop there. And we'll ask the question that we ask every week, the question that you should ask every time you study your Bible. The question is, so what? What do we do with this story? How does it apply to our life today? Well, all week long as I've studied the text, I've been trying to place myself in the story Not because I think I'm the main character of the story. That's actually a terrible way to read the Bible by trying to place yourself into the story to be the main character. But I place myself in the story to better understand what happened, to imagine what it must have been like to be on the boat that day, to learn as much as I could about this miracle of Jesus. And as I thought about what it would have been like to be on the boat, two questions kept coming to mind. Question number one is this. Why do storms happen at all? Why do storms happen at all? Now, of course, I don't mean, why does God allow wind and rain? I'm using storm here as a metaphor, as they often did, for chaos and difficulty and darkness and pain. Why do these storms happen at all? And then the second question is this, why did Jesus allow his disciples to go through this storm? So why do storms happen? But maybe more importantly, why did Jesus allow his disciples to go into the storm? I mean, at the very least, in John's account, He allowed them to go ahead of him knowing that the sea at night was a dangerous place. But, and this is is theologically tricky to deal with, Mark's account says that Jesus made them go ahead. Jesus forced them into the storm. And then, as if that wasn't enough, again, this is tricky to deal with, Jesus, it seems, climbed the hillside and watched them go through the storm. Like he could see them from the hillside where he was praying. He could see them in this difficult struggle. So why did Jesus allow them or even force them into the storm knowing that it was a place of pain and dread and chaos? And of course, the questions behind those questions are these. The questions you've probably already asked. Why do storms happen in my life? Why does difficulty happen to me? And furthermore, why does God allow me to go through these times of pain and dread and chaos? As I have pondered these questions and sat under this passage all week, I see three reasons why storms occur, and I see three reasons why God might allow us to walk through difficult, tumultuous seasons. So three reasons why storms happen, and three reasons why God might allow those to happen to us. First reason why storms happen is this, because of our sin. Because of our sin. Let me start with just the most obvious Sometimes life is difficult because we are acting in direct disobedience to our loving Heavenly Father's good plan and will for our life. Sometimes life is difficult, storms happen because we have to live with the consequences of our sinful behavior. So if your your marriage is really struggling right now, perhaps it's because you just keep sinning against your spouse. Perhaps We experience pain and difficulty because we are, in the words of Buddy the Elf, just a bunch of cotton-headed ninny-muggins. We just keep doing dumb thing after dumb thing after dumb thing. A great biblical example of this is Jonah. You may remember the flannel graph story from your childhood. Why did Jonah end up in the storm and eventually the belly of the fish? Disobedience. God told him, go do this. And Jonah went, no, I'm good. I'm going to go do what I want to do. And what happens? He ends up in, quite literally, a storm. So, if you're in a really dark, painful season, a good question that you should ask is this. Am I here because I have disobeyed God? Is this a consequence of my sinful behavior? Now, second reason, please hang with me. Second reason why storms happen is this. Because of the sin of others. 
Some of you find yourself in one of the most painful seasons of your life, and it's happening not because of your sin, but because of the sin of someone else. I've had multiple, perhaps dozens of conversations over the past few years with women in our church who are broken and confused, not because of their sin, but because of the sin of their husbands. There are many parents in this room who are walking through immense pain because of the sinful choices of their adult children. There are people here who are suffering at work because they work for someone who is jealous or angry or greedy for gain because of the sin of someone else. A good biblical example of this is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul just keeps being obedient. He keeps following the Lord. He keeps doing what God asks him. He is faithful, obedient, loving. And what happens? Paul is beaten, mocked, arrested, beheaded eventually. So sometimes you end up in a storm because you sin. Sometimes you end up in a storm because someone close to you sinned. And third, we end up in a storm because we live in a fallen world because we live in a fallen world. The story of the Bible begins with God, a relational triune God, creating a loving relational humanity. The world is perfect, and in that moment, there is peace. Everything was perfect. There was no sin, no injustice, no disease, and more importantly for our discussion today, there was no suffering or no storms of life. So, and we've talked about this many times, but it's really important for us to remember at all times, there are, in, the, in that moment, in Genesis 1 and 2, there are fleshly bodies without chronic pain or disease. There are brains and minds without mental illness or anxiety or depression. There was wine, but no alcoholism. There's food, but no gluttony or hunger. There was marriage, but no divorce. There was nakedness, but no shame. There was sex, but no addiction or rape or oppression. There was work, but no sweat or toil. Everything was just right. The Hebrew word that describes this garden-like feeling is the word shalom. Shalom, and it means peace or flourishing or well-being. A guy named Cornelius Plantinga Jr. describes shalom this way in his fantastic book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. Everything for a season was as it ought to be. But you know the story. Sin comes crashing into the world and it leaves no stone unturned. It distorts and perverts everything about humanity and everything about the world. Everything. Plantinga goes on to say this, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God has joined together and joins together what God has put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void from which it came. God hates sin, not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. Brothers and sisters, this is the world we now live in, a place where the shalom of God has been broken, and unfortunately, that means from time to time, we will encounter parts of the fall. We will encounter disease and affliction. So sometimes you end up in the storm because you sin. Sometimes you end up in the storm because someone else sinned. And then sometimes you end up in a storm of life just because we live on this planet and the world is broken. The bigger question, at least for me, is this. Why does God allow us, his beloved, 
to go into these seasons of pain. I mean, at a theological level, we believe that God could stop them if he wanted to. He could take us out of them if he wanted to, and sometimes he doesn't. So the question is, why? Why does he allow us, his beloved children, to go through these seasons? You know, I don't know if we will ever fully understand why on this side of eternity. But based on this story we just read, and based on my own personal and pastoral experience, let me give you three possibilities. Three possible reasons why God allows us to walk into storms in life. Number one, to build our faith in him. To build our faith in him. I think one of the reasons why God might allow us to go through painful dark seasons is to strengthen our faith in him. I think this is definitely true in this particular story. Think about it. Jesus is preparing these guys. He is strengthening their faith in him so that they are equipped for the days ahead. Think about all that's to come for these disciples. He is training them, equipping them, building their faith so that they will trust him even more in the days ahead. I think he does the same for us. I mean, the scriptures talk about this in several places. For example, I think this is what Peter is getting at in 1 Peter 1. Let me show you this. 1 Peter chapter 1. This is from the NLT. Normally, we are in the ESV. NLT says this, so be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And then you have James, the brother of Jesus. In James chapter one, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Let me reread that. When storms of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. This is why I love talking to older saints in our church because there's such a resilience to them. They've walked through so much life that like smaller things that I tend to worry about just don't even phase them anymore because their faith has been strengthened over time. My friend and fellow pastor Josh uh, tells a story about a time when he found himself just in the, in the pits of despair and depression and he was actually wondering if he should call it quits on ministry and so he goes to his mentor, a man that was much older than him, a man who had been a pastor for almost 40 years. And he tells this older pastor about what was going on and what he was going through. And the older pastor just listened patiently and then said, Josh, God has been so good to you and he's not done with you yet. Josh, feeling frustrated, said, Steve, you just have more faith in God than I do. Steve smiled, put his hand on Josh's shoulder and said, no. No, I just have way more experience with our faithful God. If you're experiencing a trial or a storm right now, take heart, be encouraged, allow this difficulty, as painful as it may be, to strengthen you, to build your faith in a loving God. Second, second reason why, second possible reason why, to remind us of his comforting presence to remind us of his comforting presence. I think Jesus allows us to go through these seasons so that we can be reminded of his comforting presence. You see, here's something that stood out to me when I read this story again and again this week. At least as John tells the story, notice that Jesus doesn't stop the storm. In John's account, Jesus doesn't stop the storm. And yet, they were comforted. 
So if, if it wasn't the storm stopping that brought them comfort, what was it? It was his presence. It was his nearness to them. It was him standing there. Suddenly he's present with them and all fear goes away. Going through challenges and storms has a way of bringing us closer to God and making us more aware of his presence. I would argue, I would argue that it at least feels as though we are closer to God during the storm than during the good seasons of our life. There's something about the storms that make us more aware of his presence and nearness. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. So here's what this means, friends. When you are crushed, when you are brokenhearted, when you are confused, when your family is falling apart, when the cancer keeps spreading, when your spouse walks away again and again and again, when you fall into that addiction again and again and again, believe this, God is near to you. He is with you. He is right there comforting you every step of the way. You know, as a pastor, I, I get to be a part of the, the high points of people's life and the low points of people's life. So I get to be a part of weddings and baptisms and baby dedications, but I also get to be a part of divorces and sickness and death and mental health breaks. And, and those difficult moments, it, it is an immense joy and privilege to be included in those moments. I want you to know that. Now, when I say it's an immense joy, that might sound weird. It's kind of a weird word choice to describe what it's like to sit with you in your suffering. But based on the word of God, I believe that in those moments, through your tears and grief and anger and confusion, that God is closer to you in that moment than he's ever been. And so it is an absolute joy to just sit in God's presence with you and to soak it in together. So sometimes we go through storms to be reminded that God is present with us, that he is near. And then third, lastly, one other possibility is to help us know him more deeply, to help us know him more deeply. Now, full disclosure, this is a truth that I don't like, nor do I fully understand, but it's one we see confirmed again and again and again in the scriptures. Now, we don't have time to unpack it, but if you go read Matthew's account of this same story, we get this extra little tidbit about Peter trying to walk on the water as well. And in that story, we get this image that he gets to know Jesus in a more intimate, relational way than he did before. It's preparing Peter for what's ahead. There is something about suffering and pain and darkness or the storms of life that draws us closer to the Lord to experience him in a different way, to know him in a more intimate way. I would even argue this. There are things about God that we cannot experience apart from those dark nights of the soul. There's something about the deep pain in life when you have cried so much, your face hurts. That just can't be replicated in normal life. Maybe I can explain it like this. I've had the immense privilege of spending much of my adult life studying and thinking about this book, the, the Word of God. I have a bachelor's degree in theology, a master's degree in all things divine, and a doctorate in preaching. I have sat in countless, countless hours of lectures about the Bible, the original languages, theology, and pastoral ministry. I have attended over 100 conferences, seminars, specialized trainings in those years. I've been in full-time pastoral ministry for nearly 15 years, and I've sat in thousands of meetings with people who are asking me questions about God and the Bible and the meaning of life. By my very rough calculations, I have preached 
just over 500 sermons, and I've listened to over 3,000 sermons in my lifetime. I have taught college-level Bible courses on Ecclesiastes, Luke, First and Second Timothy, and Daniel. And I say all that to say this. Please don't miss what I'm about to say, okay? I don't know God because I have done those things. I know a lot about God because I've done those things, but I don't know him in a relational, intimate way because I have studied him. I know God in a real, intimate, relational way because I have walked through really painful seasons in my life. I know God because as a 17-year-old boy, I would wake up early and I would drive to the hospital on the way to school and I would pray over my grandmother and I would pray for God to heal her and to restore life in her. I know God because as a newlywed husband, I watched my wife go through the pains of miscarriage and I had to wrestle with God and ask him why he would allow us to go through something like that. I know God because I have carried my daughter's body into the emergency room at Dornbecker and pleaded with God to save her. I know God because I have stood by my wife's hospital bed and I've begged God to spare her life and to give us more time together. I know God because I have sat in hospital waiting rooms with some of you as you have received the worst news of your life and I watched the church your family wrap around you in love. I know God because I have sat on some of your couches and watched the metaphorical walls start caving in all around you. That's how I know God. And if you think about it, that's how you know God too. You learn the most about him in the most painful seasons of your life, whether you realize it in that moment or not. There is something about the storms in the storms, we come to know God in a way that is very difficult to put into words. In just a moment, we will sing a couple of songs and take communion. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to acknowledge something that may contradict everything I have just said for the past 30 minutes or so. I want to say something that may potentially derail this entire sermon. Every sermon I've ever heard on this passage usually takes this idea of Jesus being present in the storm and they treat it entirely metaphorically. So it always goes something like this. Well, the disciples faced a storm and brothers and sisters, we too will face storms in this life. So here are three truths to remember as we face storms in our life. Now you're probably thinking, yeah, Justin, that is what everyone normally does with this. And in case you didn't notice, that's exactly what you did with this. So let me clear my name for a moment and say this. I don't think it's a bad way to read or even preach this text. However, and this is really important, if that's all we do, if that is our only takeaway, then we have completely missed the entire reason why John included this story in his gospel in the first place. You see, anytime we study the Bible, we must figure out, one of the first things we have to figure out is authorial intent. In other words, any good Bible student starts with this question, why is this person writing this letter to this particular group of people at this particular time and place in human history? And John makes it very clear to us why he wrote this particular story to this particular group of people at this particular time. At the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, John writes this, now, 
Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These stories that I just told you, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You see, John isn't writing some fairy tale with fictional characters so that we could have a great metaphor to use 2,000 years later about the storms of life. John is writing about his friends, real people in a real boat, on a real lake, and about how they saw Jesus actually walk on water. And John says this was written so that you and I would believe deeply that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world, and that by believing in him, we might have life eternal. So as we come to the tables, may this be our heartfelt confession, no matter what storm we may find ourselves in today. Jesus, you are the Christ. Jesus, we believe but help our unbelief. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. The way you continue to speak to us through it never ceases to amaze me. God, I pray for our brothers and sisters in this room who perhaps are in such a dark storm right now that they tuned out for the majority of the message. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would comfort them in this moment, that they would feel loved and encouraged, that they would feel your nearness to them. And God, as we sing, even if they don't have the ability to sing words out loud, that they would listen to the words being sung all around them by your saints, and that they would be comforted by the body of Christ. God, I don't always understand why you do or allow some of the things that go on. And yet, God, I trust you. God, help us to see you clearly. Help us to trust you fully. And help us to follow you every day of our life. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.